pray. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your kindness. Thank you for the family of God, uh, that we can come in here and at times feel isolated, that we can sometimes feel alone, and we gather with your people, and we know we're not. And your love permeates this place, and we recognize its messiness and its nuances, uh, yet your grace is amongst us. Fill our hearts with joy and love and mercy, and may we receive from your scriptures today as the Holy Spirit presses on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, had to be about 12, maybe 13 years ago, and I need to survey this room to make sure I can tell this story. Yes, I can. (laughs) Uh, I was leading a youth trip of junior hires. Talk about a rough week. And we went rafting on the river, and then I drove these kids, uh, some chaperones, over to the coast, and we were camping there at Harris Beach State Park, which is beautiful if you've never been there. And as we were camping there, we were on the tail end of this youth trip, and I I don't know if you've ever spent a week with like 25, 30 junior hires. I don't advise it, but you can if you'd like to. So uh, I spent this week with these kids, and there were these boys. They were this group of friends, and, and they did a lot of stuff together. These kids had known each other for forever, and I don't know if it was... Just end-of-the-week shenanigans and pranks that started to go wrong. Um, I may or may not have participated in them. (laughs) We did convince a kid to wash his hair on one other trip with mustard and ketchup because he had a tick. So, that's me. (laughs) Actually, that was my wife who convinced that kid to do that. So, So that wasn't this trip. But those are the kind of pranks and things that we were constantly up to. This one maybe, maybe could have been about girls because it was a pretty big fight. And I saw these kids and they were taking all their stuff out of this tent. And there was one kid left in there. It's probably 11 o'clock at night. And all I hear the kids say is, mother. All right. So we'll stop there. And then he says, I wish you'd all go to hell. And I was like, dang, I have to deal with this. (laughs) Shoot. So I go over to this tent, and this kid's a little bit trembling and just fearful, like, oh, my goodness, that probably came out a lot louder than I should have. Yeah, the whole camp heard. I'm on your doorstep. I'm on the front of your tent. You know, it's not like you can hide in there anyways. And so I pull this kid out, and he's just scared and upset, and he's getting ready to apologize for saying the F word. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, it's not like my favorite word, but, but I go, I'm more concerned about you wishing somebody to go to hell. It's like, I think we have used that term so loosely and don't really comprehend, and it was kind of this aha moment, not only in his life, but in my life as we're evaluating and thinking some things through. And we sit around and we talk and we talk and we talk and we have this great conversation. And one of the things that it did is it just kind of brought about this reality of actually what we have to discuss this morning, one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And I call it a hard saying of Jesus because it's not necessarily a hard saying that we don't want to understand here this morning. It's not that we can't believe what Jesus is teaching here. It's that we actually don't want to believe it. 
We don't want to think this way. We don't want to line up with it because it kind of just gut punches us and wrenches our hearts. Or if you're a self-righteous Christian, what we're going to talk about today, you get a big smirk across your face like, oh, go get him. Go get him, God. So if you haven't guessed it yet, I get the fun challenge of unpacking hell. (laughs) Let me read this to you in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31. Carson's going to come back next week and tell some fun parables, and we're going to laugh and have a great time. So come back next week, because Carson's awesome. Uh, This week, I drew the short stick. It says, when the Son of Man, which is this term for Jesus, and it's a term that's used in Daniel as well, and it's one that Jesus likes to use about himself. It's a prophetic term talking about that he is the one to come. And so he's talking about a moment that's going to happen in the future. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels, or these messengers, they come with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So let me just first establish this as Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, there's coming a moment, there's coming a day when I will be returning, coming back. And this is just so far over their heads because there's not yet been cross, death, resurrection, ascension at this point. And they're listening to what he's having to say. And he's talking about this glorious throne. And he says, before him will be gathered all nations. First of all, I love that. The inclusiveness of Jesus. Christianity inclusive to all, exclusive to Jesus, okay? Inclusive to any who call on his name. Inclusive of all who would be invited into the kingdom, but by him alone. He will separate, key word here, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Anybody ever owned goats? Don't. <laughs> They're ornery. They get out. They're a pain. They were all over Hemholtz Road multiple times from my property. Okay? He's going to separate these two. The sheep who are just, you know, ah, so docile, so easy, so nice. We're going to get goats again, huh? <sighs> He'll place the sheep on the right with the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When we did, we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you. And when you did, we see you sick or in prison and visit you. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We don't even have time to unpack that. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. Separation. Depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels 
For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answer them saying, truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did it, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment for the, but for the righteous into eternal life. Lord, give us grace and mercy as we spend time in this for the next 20, 30 minutes. We don't like to talk about judgment or hell, but I have one mission today, one goal today, one point. Like, yes, it might be short. No, it's one big point. <laughs> why judgment is necessary and why whether you follow Jesus or you're atheistic or all religious, you don't have any affiliation to any grouping of people, you still believe, need, and live your life by some rule of judgment. Okay. Just want that in the back of your mind as we go through this this morning. This comes from NBC News. In recent years, fewer Americans prayed, believed in God, took the Bible literally, attended religious services, identified as religious, affiliated with a religion, or had confidence in religious institutes. The large declines in religious practices among young adults are also further evidence that millennials, because we're a great bunch, are the least religious generation in memory and possibly in American history. Way to go, millennials, said psychologist Jean Twenge of San Diego State, who led the study. In the late 80s, only 13% of adults, U.S. adults, expressed serious doubts about the existence of God. Hear that? Only 13% of people polled, surveyed, didn't believe in some kind of deity or God that existed. I'm not even claiming, calling for the God, Christianity, Yahweh, so we can go down those roads a little later. Choosing one of the less certain responses, choices such as I don't believe in God, I don't know whether there is a God, I don't believe there is any way to find out, or I don't believe in a personal God, but do believe in a higher power of some kind. The team wrote, yet 80% of Americans said they believe in an afterlife in 2014, up 73% in 1972, from 1972-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1974-1
Intermittent time is not purgatory, but you can get stories or parables in the New Testament like Lazarus and the rich man, where there seems to be some kind of an abode in which we're awaiting the resurrection of the body, both for the righteous and the unrighteous. Every person is going to be resurrected. Every person who's been created is not created with a soul. You are a soul. You are a soul. That's why we're going to talk so much about soul care in the coming months and just talking about practices and what it looks like to slow down and rest and be in God's presence. And there's this unnatural thing that happens because of sin, separation, in which when we die, there is a tearing or a ripping apart, but the goal is is for physical body and soul to be reunited, and there's going to be a judgment that happens, and that's what the Bible is primarily concerned about, is life after life after death. That is the age to come, what Jesus brings with him. But this morning... One thing we cannot escape is that Jesus and the scriptures talk about judgment. Gosh, I hate that word. When Christians use the word judgment, I think all kinds of images come just swirling up in our minds. It might be those dumb far side cartoons, right? Where you see the devil there and he's got the big horns and the pitch pitchfork and flames are going on behind them and there's some joke that's happening. It might be a more crude picture, that of like Dante's Inferno, which has heavily influenced Western thought and shaping our picture and depiction of what hell looks like. When Christians have probably spoken to you about hell, you get this sort of fiery image and then also outer darkness. There's all kinds of confusion on what the heck can you even have both those things existing together? And there's cultural pressures and assumptions of how on earth can a loving God send people to an eternal state of perpetual judgment and pain? And so feelings around this topic are varied. For some, it causes us to not even want to trust the God of the Bible. And what most Christians are concerned with is more the space, location, and makeup of hell. For some reason, they're really curious about this place that they're never going to visit. I can tell all my friends and warn them. I get that. I get that. But one thing that we can be certain of and that we will be certain of is in the end, in the end, There is going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment. What does that look like? Well, there's a few things we need to unpack here this morning. The Bible doesn't use the word hell. Shoot. It uses the word Gehenna, which was a huge dump outside the gates. It uses vivid imagery, metaphors that Jesus discussed and talks about. In the Old Testament, it uses the word sheol, which is that which means grave. It uses that for both the righteous and the unrighteous. You can maybe find the word Hades as well that's mentioned, which really stems from a Greek thought in which the God who ruled the underworld, that was his place. Maybe you've seen the movie Hercules the cartoon version, and you get the picture of that little guy that kind of pops up, and he is the god of Hades. 
And while the Bible never uses the word hell, we do get the word judgment, and we do draw from context this place in which the wicked who've rejected the good news, they will live on and be a part of. Now, some people like to say hell is just a heart condition. Is it? Yes, and one that carries on into the age to come. One that you can experience both now and for eternity. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells some people that you can be a child of hell or Gehenna now. A child of wastelessness and destruction and emptiness. And it's a state that will continue on into the age that is to come. He told the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. We read throughout the scriptures and we see that this abode, this place that is discussed, talked about whether it's in our second Peter or what Jesus is describing here. It's a place in which was created for the wicked angels, the those that were demons, Satan himself. But Jesus tells us that this place is a place in which some who are human, many will be. And these vivid metaphors that Jesus uses aren't necessarily describing what it looks like there, but they're used to give us an idea of judgment. A metaphor for something that I think is probably much worse, no doubt, Yes, a metaphor, but one that is describing something much more harmful or painful or sad than we could imagine. So out of darkness, what are we going to do with this? Judgment. I'm only one page through ten pages of notes, so you're going to have to come back maybe next week. I don't know. (laughs) Shoot. We'll cruise. There's many, many verses Jesus gives to talk about Gehenna, to talk about Hades, to talk about what we translate as hell. Matthew 22, 11 through 14. Matthew 24, verse 50. Matthew 25, 29 through 30. You can email me. I'll email you back. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Daniel 12, 2 through 5. Really the only Old Testament passage that is very explicit, saying some for everlasting, they'll shine like the stars that are bright in the sky, and for others, everlasting contempt. St. Augustine, or Augustine, wrote this, Hell is not a matter of feeling, but a fact. There's no way of waving or weakening the words which the Lord has told us. He will pronounce at last judgment. Okay, here we go. Do I believe in judgment? I sure do. I believe there's going to be a judgment. I believe there's going to be a rising of all. And we're going to stand before God. What does that look like in the end? And why is that judgment necessary? I've got 20 minutes to do this for you guys, so pray for me. (sighs) Three pieces that I think are scriptural that you can make a case for when it comes to hell. Because I know a lot of you, that's what you're really curious about. What does Brett believe, or what does Redeemers believe about the space and the place, the atmosphere, the the temperature of hell? The pit, how deep is it? What does that actually look like? Well, first of all, none of y'all know, and my goal is to make sure none of y'all know. Because I want you to hear the love of Jesus, the grace, the goodness, the kindness of God that he's inviting you into to walk with him forever. There are three views that I think can be backed up through scripture. This is the three things that I don't know about. 
These are the three things that we can sit around and have coffee and talk, but if any of you tell me you know about it, I don't think so, okay? Just don't think so. These three views, we'll call the first one the Western view. The Western view of hell is the view that my brother would pitch to me. We had bunk beds, right? You're going to go burn. You're a sinner. You're done for. You better accept Jesus. And it's like, cool, he scared the hell out of me. And I responded to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thanks, brother. He's a pastor too. It's cool. And so, so this view that we can have of hell is this fiery pit, this ongoing duration, ongoing consequence. This is pretty much the typical Western view that it's eternal it's eternal in consequence, meaning it's ongoing forever, and it's eternal in the sense of it's irreversible. It's locked from the inside. There's no getting back to the other side once that judgment has been announced on you. It's the one that gets so characterized in our culture today. Like I said, the cartoons are all about, the far side cartoons have those pictures of, of what hell might look like. And ACDC is there, and they are just ripping Yeah, <laughs> if you listen to them, at least in the church I grew up in, you're going to be there with them. <laughs> Don't listen to them backwards. <laughs> the Western view. There's another view within the Western view. One of my favorite Bible teachers, he's not with us anymore. His name is John Stott. He's a teacher of teachers. My favorite contemporary teacher is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller quotes John Stott like nobody's business. It's just to tell you what I think of John Stott, he's amazing. He actually held to what we call the annihilation view. He believes, he believed, and I'll give you verses for this, that yes, there's judgment, but in God's grace and mercy and kindness, at some point, those people just cease to exist. So it's not eternal suffering. How in the world could this good God know that in some other realm there's this place in which people are just crying out? No, 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 no. Their lives, their lives are just poofed out. There's the third view. It's the outworking of sin, a.k.a. the Lewis. The C.S. Lewis is kind of a big deal. N.T. Wright holds to a version of this. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project talks about this, uh, and I think there's a great case that can be made for it, okay? These are your views of hell. These are the things we don't know about. The Western view, let me just give you kind of this picture of it. This comes from Origen, an early church father. Hell was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so they could find their way back to God. So he held this like really, really bad place, but then somewhat of a purgatory-ish view in which you're gonna make your way back to God. I disagree with him there. Dante of Dante's Inferno picked up on this, which I have a sweet old copy of this book. I should have brought it. Depicted hell as a place under the earth's surface with nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes, tormented by beasts, showered with icy rain. Sounds like Central Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) And trapped in the rivers of blood, flaming tombs. Some were even steeped in huge pools of human excrement. And this view, the wrath of God is poured out in the wicked in terms of pain, suffering, misery. There's a lot of evangelicals that find this incredibly troubling. While admitting that our sin is cosmic treason before God, wondering does the punishment fit the crime? We can have some conversations around this. 
I'm just going to throw that view out there. It's one that a lot of Christians hold on to. The one that John Stott subscribed to uses the verse in Matthew 10, 28, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus never says destroy, excuse me, Jesus never says burn forever, right, in that passage. So that's where annihilationists will go to. The third view, and I'm speeding through these for time's sake, is the Lewis, this outward working of sin. I'm going to focus a little bit here because it's probably the most obscure, the one that you haven't heard a lot about. I just want to bring it to the surface, and then I'm going to talk about why judgment is necessary in our lives. For C.S. Lewis, hell is a kind of dark, gloomy city or a place where beings fade into non-entity. Any L-O-T-R fans? Lord of the Rings? Oh, there's a hand. Yeah, L-O-T-R, Lord of the Rings. There is a shadowy character who used to be something, but unbecame it. Who is it? Ah, yes! What a terrible riddle. <laughs> Golem. He was river folk, much like the hobbits. And he gets this ring, and when he gets this ring, and it preserves his life, and he hangs on to it, one of the most blaring aspects about Golem is the amount of selfishness in which he indulges in. The ring is his precious. The ring is what keeps him alive. The ring is what keeps him going, and it's all about him. And what happens in that is it brings this deformity into his personhood, making him less of what he originally was as he walks further into his depravity, becoming less river folk more shadowy figure and selfishness. If you didn't know, Tolkien and Lewis were friends. They'd often hang out at the pub together and talk. Great conversations. N.T. Wright says this, the central fact about human beings is the Bible is that they bear the image of God, Genesis 1, 28 through 26. We've done so much work on the image of God, it's what makes you human. Okay? He takes the dirt and he forms it and he fashions it and he breathes his very ruach into it. He breathes life into Adam, into Eve. And there in the garden, they are reflecting in perfect way the very image of God, God's presence there, then reflecting it back to him, living in unity with God. Yet when sin, when separation, when we say, God, I don't need you, my way, not your way, enters into our lives, we become deformed, Though right now, currently, that image-bearing, though shattered, still has moments and glimmers of hope and peace and mercy as we reflect this shattered portion of it. Well, N.T. Wright says the central fact of image-bearers, and he goes on, I understand this as vocation as much as innate character. Humans are summoned to worship and love their creator, to reflect his image into the world. When, however, instead of worshiping and loving him, they worshiped and loved that which is not him. In other words, something within the order of creation, whether spiritual or material, they turn away from him. But they can only be maintained in his image as genuine humans by worshiping him. They depend on him for their life and character. The rest of creation, by contrast, is subject to decay and death. If we worship it or some part of it, instead of the life-giving God, we invoke death upon ourselves instead of life. What N.T. Wright goes on to explain in lengthy, nerdy, super fun articles to read is that in eternity, 
It's people who have said to God, not your will, but my will be done. And he says, great. I'm going to give you over to your choice. And you are going to become less human, more deformed, more shadowy, further from who I am. And Jesus uses all this vivid imagery to talk about what this actually does to the soul, bringing death and destruction and this pain and this misery, because life apart from God does precisely that. It breaks relationship, not only with us and him, but then it's caused broken relationship between us and other people. You get that? When Adam and Eve sinned, yes, it caused this separation between them and God, but then they turn to one another, and they're exposed, they're naked and ashamed, and they realize it, and Adam says, it's the woman, she made me do this. I'm sure it didn't take a lot of convincing, bro. Like, women get us to do a lot of dumb things, okay? And they're mistrusting one another. And so what they believe is there's this outworking or outplaying of the decisions we've already made today. As Keller puts it, hell is a freely chosen identity based on something besides God going on forever. Hell is telling God, leave me alone. Leave me alone. You know, Christianity, especially today, gets a bad rap in culture. But without Christianity, I don't think you'd see the liberation of women that we've seen over the last 2,000 years. Without Christianity, I can tell you I probably wouldn't be educated because it's Christians who saw value in teaching and causing a society to be literate. Out of the first, I think it was 50 universities founded in America, 48 or 49 of them were strong religious Christian institutions. Christianity is about so much of this goodness and reflection of God into the world. Well, what then is hell? It is telling God, leave me alone and living that for eternity. Leave me alone, leave me alone, leaving me alone. Drifting further away from who he is. God comes and says, I created you, I made you, I know how you ought to live. Respond to my goodness, I'll fill you up, whether you're rich or you're poor, affluent, illiterate. Come to me, all you who are thirsty and heavy laden, and I will give you life. I will complete, fulfill, and bring shalom into who you are. But when you reject me, if you reject me and continue to do so, this hard heart of yours which has created a hard exterior over you in this life, is going to exist, persist into the age to come. And I think there's this mindset in which we see this conveyor belt, and God is like, boop, boop, heaven, boop, boop, heaven, and then, nope, hell, and there's this deep pit, and people are trying to claw out of there, and they want to get out, they want to get out, and he's stomping on their hands. And that's the picture that's been painted of hell. When in all reality, they're not trying to climb to get over there because like Golem, they are so into themselves, they cannot see God or want to see God. Because why would they want his authority in their life? I could talk about that view for a long time. I'm going to let that sit with you for a moment. I'm going to finish up with this last thought. Judgment itself is morally good. A good God must punish evil. Judgment itself is morally good. 
and a good God must punish evil. Now, we talk about judgment. We get all uptight and we squirm and we're like, dang it, I brought a friend today. (laughs) (laughs) Go buy him food later. Make it up for it. How dare you talk about judgment? How dare I not? Dare I not? Because something deep down inside of each and every one of you, even today, cries out for judgment. I shared with you guys, oh, a few months ago, um, somebody decided to walk into our house and steal a bunch of stuff. It was super cool of them. And um, we caught him, which is awesome. And I knew I was never going to get my, my stuff back. But one of the things that I told the officer was, I just want well, justice. <laughs> Who do you think I am? <laughs> I just want justice. But if I want justice, what does that mean? I need somebody to pronounce a? Mm-hmm. I do. I do. Every society that functions well has a set of rules and laws or ways to enact judgment upon it in which to keep things decently and in order. So when somebody gets outside of that, there can be some kind of sentencing that takes place in order to bring them back in. This happens on an internal level for you as well, as much as just in a culture or a society. We all want justice. And the question becomes, can this God of love also be a God of justice, and we struggle with it because God can't be a judging God. How dare he if he's loving and perfect? He should love and accept everyone, and God should never, ever get angry. All true loving persons, if you truly love somebody or love something, you will get angry at some point or another. Do you know that? If you want to know what you love, in fact... Chase what makes you angry, and that'll tell you what you love. I've shared before, when we go to the pool with my daughter and other girls, kind of like look at her and give her the uh uh-uh, I'm like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, get mad at those girls, because I love my daughter, and I don't want them making any judgments on her. Becky Pippert, she wrote, this is how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with whole being. The Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love because he delights in his creation. He is angry at evil, he is angry at injustice, and he has to deal with it. What do we want? We want his rule of righteousness, but we don't want the righteous ruler. We want justice, but we don't want a judge. We want the fruit of Christianity, but we don't want the king of Christianity. If you don't have a God that brings judgment, life is meaningless. Last quote, we'll close it out. I got another quote after this quote, though. Then we'll close it out. (laughs) Yeah. Anybody read Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller? Okay, that's that's not what I'm going to quote from, but that's the same guy. Arthur Miller. He says, for many years, 
This is a play, and this play is being acted out on stage. One of the characters says, For many years, I looked at life like a case of law, at law. A series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, right? You're 18, 19, 20, you're surfing big waves, everything's great and amazing, and your body doesn't hurt at all. How brave you are. Or smart. You're not. That one's for free kids. Then, then, what a good lover you are. Then, a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful, pardon my language, but, or whatever the hell ever. But underlying it, all I see now, there was a presumption. I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyways. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and a bench was empty. So here is this character and he's coming to the end of his life and he's hoping that there's someone to judge him and he sees that the judgment seat is empty. Arthur Miller writing this play is not a follower of Jesus. And he says, no judge is in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. What does he mean by litigation? We argue with ourselves and other people. We say, it's better to be unselfish than to be selfish. Tell me why, if you don't believe in eternal judgment. Why the heck should I share what God has, should I share what I've earned? Why? Uh, He goes on. It's wrong to trample down weak people. Is it not? Are we all not fighting for justice and raising up voices that are being persecuted and harmed and hurted? Why are you wasting your time if there's no judge at the end of the day? And weak groups and exclude them from power? It's better to keep your promises than to stab people in the back. We're constantly saying it's better. We're telling each other what's right, what's wrong. We're talking to ourselves. We're saying, I'm a good person. I'm doing this. But if no one is seated on the bench of the universe, if there's no judge, I realize, what does this all mean? Look at me, church. Every person outside these doors and in these doors believes in judgment. They need it to survive. They need it to live. They need it to justify why they do what they do, why they're nice, why they're kind, why they're loving. Everybody wants judgment. They need it. Yet when Jesus talks about it, or Christians explain it, there's this apprehensive towards it, not because judgment isn't real, because they don't like our solution, which is Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? You live in a contradiction if you want judgment but not a judge. But let me tell you what Jesus did. The judge was judged. He stepped down off the bench and hung himself on a cross. And we believe in the propitiation of sins. We believe in the substitutionary atonement in which this judge took your place, took your pain, took your wrath, and took it all upon himself. In which in that moment he said, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatthani. I butchered it. I'm sorry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Whatever that separation was that happened on the cross, I don't know how to explain it or pretend to explain it. I think it's a little foretaste of what could happen to those of us if we'd experienced eternal separation from the Father. And he is judged, and it brings us into right relation with him. He is our hope because he was judged for each and every one of us. This is what you need to walk away with today. Judgment's real. What hell looks like, I got better things to spin my mind on. I'm just going to be honest with you. Do we, uh, do they get annihilated? I don't know. Do they drift off into some foreign land and foreign... I, I don't know as they become dehumanized. Is it a torture chamber and a pit? I, I, I don't know. I don't... I hope not. I don't know. I don't know. But I know we all want some kind of judgment because we've all been wronged. And this is where Jesus steps in. He says, I want you. And I want you to start living the kind of life that you're going to live when I come back. I want to change your whole trajectory. I want to change your whole mindset. And I want you to reorder your life around me. We're going to end with C.S. Lewis. Hope it makes sense. If not, please call me. We'll sit down and talk for hours. Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. There's a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering if I was only going to live for 80 years or so. But I'd better bother about it if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse. So gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely, listen to this, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumbles itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Every person in here is on a trajectory. There's only two ways. The narrow, the wide. The way of Cain, or as we looked at that story in Genesis, his brother. Not Abel, he was murdered. It was Seth. Two ways in Revelation. The way of the beast, or the way of the lamb. Which way are you on? Which trajectory are you growing in? Are you more bitter than you were yesterday? Wake up, repent, come to Jesus. Are you more angry? Are you less kind? Are you less generous? Are you less loving? The trajectory of Jesus followers is one in which growing in those things. Yeah, there's setbacks, trust me, I'm a father. (laughs) There's setbacks. But that's the trajectory, and it's one that'll go on for eternity. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, hard stuff today. Stuff I don't even really want to think about at times. Because I know lost people, and they don't even know their own lostness. And they're empty, and they're lonely, and they need you. But we have to face the reality that there is a judge, and there is judgment, and it goes on and on and on. 
May our hearts break today and show love and mercy and kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.